Welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. This week, we're with Beth Williams of Build Collective, buildcollective.co.uk. Just been talking about getting her on for ages. She is, I think this is right, the UK's only Passive House certified structural engineer. She's really experienced. Well, the way Jeff put it, she's a structural engineer who gets green building. So we got her up for a chat. It was really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting talking to someone who's prepared to think about different strategies for the same challenges. You know, managing risk, managing risk in terms of climate change and evolving weather and standard stuff like roofs falling off or not falling off. Yeah, she was really good crack. So, I won't belabor the point. Well, let's get into it. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Oh, we don't really talk much about Build Collective. I think they get a name check at the end, so do check their website. It'll be in the show notes. And I think we spend the first four and a half minutes talking about dogs and stuff. So if you can't be bothered with any of that chat, just skip forward four and a half minutes from now. Cheers. Hope you enjoy. And thanks for listening. I'll just interrupt you then in that case, say that I'm going to have to leave on the hour at, at one. So if we go out today, I might just do a little wave, um, a quick message to say thank you, and then I'll be I'll be off. Uh, yeah. but just don't think I'm getting bored of the conversations. Just I have another meeting, unfortunately. Yeah. He's French, but he's not from Paris. Yeah. <laughs> and I hide it very well. You, you wouldn't hear it. From no. You wouldn't hear it. <laughs> and there's the odd vowel, you know. Um, yeah, occasionally. Yeah, occasionally, yeah. The odd word. Occasionally. I mean, maybe I should do one. We, we use the French accent all the time. You know, like, <laughs> like, like Joey Barton. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you you no, had no, Antoine no, from no. Kit Hurst on, didn't you, for that? So. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't had him on the podcast yet. Actually. Oh, you haven't yet. Yeah, yeah. No, and yeah. I've met I met him. I, I went to visit Antoine and Chloe. Um, uh, you know, sure, Beth, I met you there at the at that open day. Oh yeah. yeah. And um. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, what an extraordinary setup. We have to have them on. Um, What's that, Jeff? We Build Eco. I've been talking to you about them, Dan. Just yeah. The crowd who, um, uh, and Beth is kind of, you're, you're part of it, Beth. In fact, are we, yeah. are we going to be able to stitch this in or is it too messy? Yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's fine. I mean, this bit I'll have to edit out where we're saying, can we use it? Uh, <laughs> so no one needs to hear us debating. Like, if it's interesting, it's interesting. I'll leave in loads of stuff. Now let's, uh, yeah, let's see, test the patience of listeners and see how long it <laughs> Shave off the fat of all the story. Like, you know, the, I cut out big chunks of Jeff Simpson's references sometimes. Because <laughs> there's no need to, yeah, because like, Often, like you're describing the principal characters, the setup, the year in which it was made, like all of this to say, my dog is called Poochie because there was an, a character in The Simpsons called Poochie. Like, but we don't need to know anything about like Poochie's interaction with Fat Tony because it wasn't relevant to the story. That's just <laughs> never happens. What, what's that you're holding, Jeff? That what is, is it? That is Poochie. Yeah, it's not a dog. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> He, we, this morning, um, when we were taking going to school, he was particularly excitable, and he makes these little yippy noises that are like a like that would make a, a glove puppet sound, uh, you know, uh, uh, like very white. Um, and um, yeah, 
he uh it's just yeah it's shameful you know it's just it's he it's 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 shameful to be out with him frankly <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I hope you have one of those nice little leads, you know, those nice thin leads uh, to carry them around in, or maybe one of those handbags. I don't know. I know yeah, I should. I, yeah, I should do. Uh, I've had uh, the same fella in Monkstown Farm and the walk to school on a co- on a couple of occasions. I think with the can in his hand, probably, you know, um, uh, uh, make the same joke to me about, um, uh, "Is that a dog?" You know, <laughs> he's he's like the local Oscar Wilde, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There used to be a dog that I never saw. It was behind a hedge at the bottom of the road I lived on in Bromley, which its bark was the least masculine bark I'd ever heard uh, from a dog, the least aggressive bark. The the bark was just the dog going, woo! 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 I could only imagine, like, oh, man, it sounded so camp. Like I'll, try and, I'll try and record with you for you sometime. I've probably told you, I've probably said on the podcast, if you if you haven't uh, had the audacity to, to remove it, that uh, when he's when we're walking to school, I, I've been, myself and Rex, my son, we talk about P- Poochie's kind of wolf and forebears staring, standing, you know, up in the clouds or whatever, looking over a crystal ball or whatever, looking at him, putting their paws over their eyes with shame. I want... <laughs> And what they've become. <laughs> like yeah. a boomer decrying the young today. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great. Great little fella. He thinks he's like a, a German shepherd or something. About his dog. <laughs> My uh, dog's the opposite. He's, uh, well, gets confused for a small horse most of the time, but he thinks he's a tiny dog. He's terrified of dogs like yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always the little fella mm. uh, who you had to worry about in a pub. Yeah, like, yeah. Napoleon. The big lad, the Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big lad had nothing to prove. It's the yeah. little fella. He knew what he needed to do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Should we, should we think yeah. about starting to do this? Yeah, yeah. Great to meet you, Beth. Yeah, and you. Um, how, do we, how do we introduce you, Beth? I mean, uh, I got, should we say, look, to, today we have the pleasure of the company of Beth Williams from Build Collective, and Beth is. To my mind, uh, one of the very best uh, uh, structural engineers um, that I've ever encountered. And I have always been uh, impressed when I heard uh, Beth's talk at an open day we were talking about there a minute ago, at this, uh, at this uh, collaboration company called We Build Eco. And the depth of knowledge that Beth has about um, uh, the minutia of sustainable building is not something I'm used to experiencing from structural engineers, which I, I would tend to see probably for good reason in some ways as, as a, for understandable reasons, as a very conservative discipline, um, mm. because obviously buildings have to be able to, uh, to you know, to, to, to stand up, um, um, not collapse and not, and all that crack and structures generally. Um, so, but look, it's worth noting he's not performing this reverence for you in the room <laughs> or the podcast. Like he speaks about you when you're not there and we're not recording in much the same way. Yeah. The same reverence. Like I don't know you yet as, as well as I think I need to, to Beth, but I've, we've come across some of your projects in the past as well. And um, yeah, uh, it's, it's I just I want people like you to be to be an example and a kind of beacon for other structural engineers to follow. Um, so I'm hoping that will be the case and that we can we can help to kind of shed a bit shed a bit of light um, on on 
how you work. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It's really nice to hear that um yeah, other people are appreciating what I do, what we do as build collective. So thanks thanks for saying that. That's that's really nice to hear. Um yeah, it's it, it's um been an interesting um sort of road to get here, I guess really, um which was one of um your questions before we started. Um yeah, so I I started I <laughs> So it's a, it's a little bit of nepotism really going into it. My dad um, was one of the guys who... You're a Nepo baby. The, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I am. Just to keep it on point. Um, and my dad was one of the guys who helped, uh, was the original group of founding members for the AECB. So um, he was a sustainable builder where he still is What's, in his retirement. I, I met him. What's his first name again? Richard. Richard Tibbles. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So he was doing, yeah, building in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire for 40 odd years doing sustainable building. So obviously that was my childhood, just that that was building. And then I, I went to study architecture originally. Um, I did structural engineering and architecture as a dual degree. Um, and I, I'd wanted to be an architect. Um, and then I graduated in the middle of uh, the last recession. So there was no jobs in architecture around. So I got stuck into structural engineering and then I just never left really. So, um, you yeah. too. no, no, I didn't go back and do the um, final uh, uh, master's degree um, in architecture to do the, the final part three, but I got a little bit, a little bit of the way down the road. Um, but I did, yeah, I didn't want to then go back into university. I wasn't particularly interested in in that by the time I'd gotten working. But yeah, I'd always I'd always known that I wanted to focus on sustainable construction, even through university. Obviously, from dad's experience and just seeing that, and it was interesting. Particularly when I first graduated, a lot of people were like, "You'll never make a business out of that. It just won't. There aren't enough projects in that." And I thought. Mm-hmm well my dad made a business out of it for 40 years so i think there are some <laughs> um so uh yeah but uh, i just sort of smile and nod to that and then continue on my way um and then i did the pacifist designer course i can't remember when that was now i think it was 2015 um mainly because i found like i was going to like acb events and that kind of thing saying that i wanted to do sustainable construction saying that i was interested in timber um and people were sort of like yeah yeah this is a structural engineer saying that fine whatever um and i found that having the qualification the pacifist designer qualification gave some weight to that and so whilst i've never used it as the pacifist designer role is sort of set up to be it's been sort of just showing interest and it's been useful just the stuff that you learn on that course is is really useful for the whole the whole thing but it yeah it's um just given a bit of weight to to what i've been saying really and then also given me for the first five years anyway the ability to say i was the only structural engineer in the uk who was also certified pacifist designer which is always good marketing <laughs> so yeah for sure so, yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit of how i got here really but, yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting journey being uh forced on the path you had to take by the global economic crisis mm, yeah and it, i dare say it's not an entirely uncommon one like lots mm. of people finding themselves stuck in trades or not trades even just stuck in jobs that they weren't intending to do yeah it's a marvel that you uh you managed to be so satisfied with it i think because i did I, I did a little bit of architectural work when i first graduated i like the uh, quicker turnaround particularly working in domestic scale structural engineering um so we 
we were looking at it like this just this last year because I'd seen an architect saying that they'd got through like five projects in the previous year and I was like oh um but then then I then I was looking through our logs to see how many we get through in a team of well we were three structural engineers last year and I think we got through 90 um structural engineering projects between uh wow. structures team so it's it, we were just like oh yeah yeah um so it, i like that faster paced um yeah input into into more more projects but j- just um yeah i think it's the sort of adhd side of me that's like i just want to move on by the time <laughs> i'm really bad at finishing up the details on projects at the end of them so um although i like the doing the details i just it's that finishing things um and it's yeah so i like the being able to move on to something else and get some yeah. interest from something else. Um, which is also why I like doing the sustainability stuff. Cause it's all sort of weird types of materials and systems and all of that kind of stuff, which just gets you thinking a bit more. Well, that was, that was the bit when Jeff was pitching that we have a chat with you because, you know, he's, uh, he's been so impressed by what you do, the way he pitched it to me, you know, he wasn't selling hard. He was just saying, this is a person we need to speak to. Because structural engineering being such a conservative, or perceived, he assumed it to be such a conservative industry, uh, you're trying all sorts. Like, mm. how on earth do you get yourself into that position where you're yeah. able to to try new things? Yeah, it is a conservative discipline. I I'd, I'd agree with that, and I think I say that as well when I talk about it at, at times. Um, I think it's just just that type of people that it attracts really but i so yeah we're trying stuff within the parameters of physics i think is the sort of way that we we yeah. think about it but it's, <laughs> carbon based too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. it's 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 like uh, but it, i think it's um partly it's we we're not aiming to be the cheapest structural engineers either so we we are charging to make sure that we've got time to do the to put the thought into um into the thing um and then also just um doing a lot of going back to basics and thinking about things not being stuck in the design codes yeah. as they end up being but yeah going back to just the sort of principles of the structural engineering and seeing if we can prove things um taking different approaches to structures we one of the things we come across a lot is um with with the looking at reducing concrete in foundations has been how um yeah how how you go about that and what that what impact that has on the above ground structure so one of mm. the things is that concrete foundations they have a known movement to them often if you can know the ground conditions it's it's you can control all of that um, and then you can control all of that for masonry buildings, which obviously in the UK is is a common building practice, and they they crack if anything moves. So they're, they're quite susceptible to movement. But if you're looking at things like lime based products, timber frame, that kind of thing, you can accept potentially more movement in your foundation that you couldn't with another to, to, with a masonry structure, particularly. But the, mm-hmm. our design codes, the British standards at least, are set up for masonry buildings and and limiting deflections within that parameter because that's what's common so it's it's taking those kind of approaches where you're sort of looking at the wider picture than just what the codes have been well this is this this is it what you're talking about um i mean you mentioned the word physics there um still within the parameters of physics which kind of implies that i suppose to it by default 
any kind of conventional structural engineering sh- should be, you know, informed by or, or driven by physics. Um, whether, but it can be subverted, I suppose, to an extent, because if you're if you've got uh, people who are doing the same thing that they've always been doing, I suppose, um, um, you know, m- um, maybe the code that was created, you know, with which would have taken into account, um, uh, you know, solid kind of building physics, you'd hope. Um, uh, although, you know, I don't know whether that's necessarily the case, depending on how old the codes are. Um, uh, it doesn't necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the engineer who's doing the work has a good grasp of building physics, right? Um, mm. uh, and I think I think that probably is really essential to us. And having having an understanding, like I, the analogy that I always kind of tend to use is, I kind of talk about uh, dumb empiricism. You know, in other words, that we um we we tend to build buildings. Um, uh, in a way where uh, the construction industry at least has a tendency to build buildings more or less the same way. Um, and we might throw extra insulation at them because, you know, climate change or, you know, whatever the, the reason. But but we try and build essentially the same way because, you know, the, the ones that don't catch fire or collapse too too often are the ones that we keep trying to build. We maybe don't fully understand why they didn't catch fire and collapse, but don't ask too many questions. Um, <laughs> get on the golf course, you know. You're taking a different approach, I think. Um, and uh, uh, it's, I also think of <laughs> the other analogy that came to my head is alternative medicine, um, how, um, you know, you can have something, a, a nonsensical treatment um, in, in, uh, in terms of a medicine or a therapy. Um, that's effective to a certain extent with people because of placebo. Um, but, you know, placebo effects are not going to help you uh, when it comes to a building standing up. <laughs> you know, you can believe in it, um, mm. but, you know, f- but uh, but the building, if the building's going to collapse, it's going to collapse, right? You know? Yeah, what, what? yeah, we get a lot of that with with people saying, "Well, I feel I feel th- this this size seems okay. It feels like your your thing is too deep or too big. Usually, I, I'm, I'm expecting more less less structure." You're like, based on what what? <laughs> Are you making that assumption? <laughs> so um, this is my yeah, truth, Beth, and I'm sticking yeah, to it. Yeah, I'm like that's that's really nice for you. And if you want to take design responsibility for that, then you go right ahead and find somebody who will insure you for that. But um, yeah, <laughs> we do get a surprising number of that, which is always slightly worrying. <laughs> I suppose it's in the green building movement. You're going to get a bit of that too, aren't you? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can sort of see the reasons that they're coming from that. It's the ones that where it's just like, uh, often backed up with, I've been doing it like this for 40 years. And you're like, that doesn't actually necessarily prove that you've been doing it right. But uh, you've been lucky. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> or, you, or you haven't seen the, the faults because no people don't go back to architects and builders for faults in buildings often. They come to structural engineers um, and, and often we get we see things that aren't structural faults as well, like damp. People will call up about that. But but like cracking, the, the, that kind of thing, it, it comes back to us. So we see the failures. And the, I've, I've just been tweeting about that this morning, actually. But um, the the because there's a the confidential reporting on structural safety, although they do fire safety as well now. Um, organization, um, and it always surprised me the number of architects who don't know that that exists, and they've got some really good reports on buildings the the buildings, any structures that are that are failing in various different ways. Which is always really interesting because there's always more than you think, um, mm. and it's always a, if it's a, something that we are worried about that we've come across quite a lot. We, you can search in there, and there, there's somebody reported it um, because it's yeah. But but people don't 
I don't know. People don't know. So, like I suppose that that also comes back down to the fact that when you've got a building, you you know you've got a lot of work up front to plan for it and actually build this, and then a loss to the people who are actually involved walk away. And as you've just said, they're probably never ever asked to be involved ever again. And I think there's been a few conversations. I've seen a lot of things through um, on the usable uh, building website. Uh, Adrian Lehman and Bill Border saying, "What if the architects were actually still, you know, involved, obliged to be involved with their project afterwards?" I think that that would change a lot. Because um, I'd also add that there's just this thing about culture as well. I grew up in the south of France, and you have to build concrete buildings. I mean, it has changed a lot now, but there was for a long time. It's, what do you mean, put wood up? No, 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 no. We're not going to allow that. That's just too unsafe for whatever reason. But it was just like, no, we've built with concrete and that's going to be the way we do it. Yeah, yeah, right. It, oh, yeah. It feels like a, a lot of this is driven by risk management. So like your mm. your trade is, yeah. is managing risk. And yeah. where we're talking about typologies being reproduced, like... It's a, a mimetic quality to architecture. Like we build them because that's what people want. And we know that because that's what people buy. We haven't built any of the other stuff. We've not tested that, but we know people will buy it. Like Jeff, the the apocryphal, oh no, it's a true story about the guy who was building passive houses. I can't remember if it was in the North or the Republic, uh, who installed boilers within the homes like heating systems because he'd never be able to sell the homes without them because people wouldn't believe it. Yeah. There is a oil um, boilers, weren't they? I think there was such a tradition of having oil boilers or burners that uh, they would have to have one if there were, was any hope of selling the home. So like he couldn't not include them because there would be a risk to him not being able to sell it. I mean, he assumes that, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if paying attention to the housing market over the last few decades has shown us anything, it's that in a seller's market, you can get away with producing any old pile of crap and people will have to buy it. <laughs> yeah, but you're yeah. not going to be able to produce a pile of crap without a heating system when it's overheated. Yeah, I mean, like and, and, and it's rare that you'll find a passive house designer who doesn't put in a heating system. It might be yeah. that you um that you that you go with something unconventional like an air-based heating system if it's a small enough passive house and have maybe one or two you know, you know, heaters in the house. But um, what I'm getting at is that all the different stakeholders in the system are managing their own risk. Like, if I build it, I've got to be able to build it to the right standard. I want to know it lasts, and I want to know I can sell it. And I want to know that people are going to be interested in it. Like, I need all of those things, which again comes back to why it was intriguing about what you do, Beth, because, well, in fact, rather i wanted to ask the question like are you guiding people to new systems or are they coming to you with oh i fancy doing something different like jeff described uh the ground screw uh approach to building which sounds absurd like it sounds <laughs> ridiculous absolutely ridiculous yeah, geez, if when all has... you've known is concrete yeah, and if anybody hasn't, if any listeners haven't come across these, these are these kind of comically large, um, gigantic screws that you uh, that you literally screw ground conditions being right uh, and the application being right that you literally screw into the ground, and then you sit your building on that. Yeah, you put your, your home on a lazy susan, and you can uh, spin the dial to change your view. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's been done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I think going back to your point about risk, I, that's one of the things that struck me as I've grown up through this industry and my career has progressed is that it becomes so very little about the actual calculations that is what obviously your whole degree is focused on. And uh, basically all of the conversations that we have in, in the office around these kind of things are, do we want to take these things on our insurances? And if we don't, I'm sure they can find somebody else who will do. And it, 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 and I've described it, uh, which uh, Nick Grant really disagreed with me on, but but it, I described it as um, it being quite subjective engineering, and I, I, that that's what I mean. And it, it it's it's essentially we've got this in insurance which costs us a lot of money each year, yeah. um, and that and that's what we're essentially here trying to protect. And and that's why I say to people who who are like, oh, well, why 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 do we have to pay you one one? Why are you so expensive? Why can't we get some? Why can't we just do it ourselves? And you're like, well, the but that that's that's it ultimately you could make up some numbers and do it yourself or you could read a textbook and uh, and try and do some structural engineering yourself i'm sure there are people who are capable of of learning like that but but it's the but nobody's going to give you insurance to to do that and that that's essentially what you're paying structural engineers for is is it's less about the calculations and more about the in, insurance that goes along along with it so i think that and that yeah around all of these systems it's do we do we have enough information to be able to to be able to take this with any kind of confidence on our in, insurances? And um, the thing with ground screws is interesting, and um, it, it, they're not uncommon. They're, they've been they're like screw steel piles have been used for a long time in uh, in lots of different industries. And with those kind of things, I always look to um, highways projects and railways projects as those being the, if they've been used on those two systems sectors then you're you're pretty good because they've got really good checking procedures much better than there are in the building industry um but yeah so so they use they use screw piles depending on the ground conditions they use screw piles and um so yeah that's that tends to be what i tell people if they're looking for screw pile manufacturers go see if they've got if they've been used on railways or highways projects you, you'll be all right <laughs> and then we can and there'll be good design information it will be there'll be good they'll go have good processes for geotechnical testing um but yeah it's, it's just looking wider outside of the the, the 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 sector that you're in which to be honest my um my director tara to give a big shout out to her oh, she's great yeah, yeah. Yeah. She, she's been great in in my development on on these kind of things because she's got um experience in the port industry in uh, pie, masts and towers. She's done a lot of big um, civil stuff like bridges and railways, and and then also a lot of different building industry experience in uh, across a number of sectors. And it, that's been really great for me to just because she'll go well. I would say, well, she, I ask her a question. She's like, well, there's a code for that. There's a guide for that. And, and, and also, oh, but they're doing that in this industry. So why can't we bring that over to? out what we are doing one of the other ones being um timber piles so they use that a lot in the port industry because it works really nicely with uh, saline environments but so if they've got they're doing it there mm. why can't we bring it over so yeah she's been a real big development for my career in terms of that's amazing making, making me think outside the box how does this relate to your insurance then from at risk you know i mean and how do uh, um when, when you're trying to be a progressive engineer um uh, in you know uh how do you uh, does it have implications in terms of pi insurance um and uh you know i don't know where you feel that industry is at in 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 terms of of uh of uh supporting 
uh, the kind of progress that we need on 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 sustainability and construction yeah we put a lot of effort each year into our pi submission um because uh, partly because not for any fault of any claims or anything on our insurance but um in the past five years our insurance premium has gone up by a factor of 10 mm. for for the same the same amount of pi insurance and all the same exclusion well even slightly fewer exclusions so like i was saying to you on an email the other day jeff we don't have worldwide uh, insurance anymore it's limited to the uk um mm. which we used to have um but yeah so we put a lot Brexit of again wonders the wonders of Brexit, right? Yeah. Brexit, <laughs> Grenfell. There's oh, yeah. a few big basement in failures in London as well, which were big claims. Um, so basements for structural engineers has been a big one that they've cracked down on. We we've still got insurance for basements, but a lot of engineers don't. And this, if you're a new engineer be, signing up. What right. somebody not think of the oligarchs and stuff with their their, their housework? <laughs> yeah, how that, are they, that how are they gonna survive? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, with the their oligarchs. basement swimming pools. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could have they could afford afford to pay the premium though. Oh yeah. They, well, but I don't think they can afford to pay for the neighbors' houses that they knocked down in the process <laughs> of building their basement. Nobody has to think about the Bond villains in this whole <laughs> equation, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, well, the Bond villain can buy their own island. <laughs> but they don't have to worry about the same sort of regulations. They can do what they like. Yeah, it's not like a recession then. You have to think that maybe they can't afford those islands anymore. <laughs> I think in a recession, people of that kind of wealth they're quids in because uh, oh yeah, I think you'll find the the price of a private island comes down in a recession. Disaster uh, capitalism actually. as well, isn't it? In those conditions, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you could probably buy half of Puerto Rico like <laughs> this sort of time. As soon as uh, inflation rises, if you're liquid, oh, jobs are good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. So we talk like we talk to loads of people across the industry. So I was while you were describing looking at alternative uh, approaches. I was minded to think of Robbie from DRES, Jeff, where he said, like, uh, when he's looking for new ideas about, so DRES, the Irish property developer, they try to build as sustainable uh, homes as they can. And they think quite holistically about how they go about it, looking at the, the land, the environment, amenities, everything, even thinking about storage for the people who are going to live in the homes, like a, a rarity nowadays. And he browses the pages of Passive House Plus for ideas because he can look at what other people are doing within the sphere. He can look at the products and the strategies. But if you're looking to infrastructure projects <laughs> for inspiration, where do you go looking for ideas? Because we've got people who listen to this who are wondering where to start with lots of projects. And it's it, it's not all just Passive House. Mm, yeah. Um, well, personally, obviously, I've got access to the in, uh, to the institution journals, so the ISTRUCT, the ICE um, journals, which are very good. Um, the ISTRUCT, uh, uh, as well, to, at the moment, have got a really big focus on sustainability, particularly embodied carbon they're looking yeah. really uh, tight at. Um, so they've got some really good articles about that at the moment. Um, yeah, so they they are good. You can access them online. You can pay individually for um, for articles, or you can subscribe to the journals they're not cheap but you can do it uh, separately what else am i 
doing so yeah because and the civils institute is really good for wider stuff obviously because civil engineering is much wider than just structural engineering um so that you get all of the stuff so there was a really good article recently a special issue about temporary works which i found really interesting i find that so temporary propping and all sorts of things like that which because i'm sad like that and i I like that, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. So they they good. They're doing a lot of stuff about sustainability in terms of like water management and those kind of strategies. Because obviously, civil engineering encompasses that kind of mm. um, water strategy, drainage, flooding, um, all of those kind of things. So yeah, they've got some good stuff going on as well. Um, so probably from an engineering perspective, that's mostly where i tend to go i mean it's it's the engineers that that people that, 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 that the, you know if we're talking to uh, clients or whoever it's 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 their structural engineers who need to be looking at this stuff right that's that that's kind of what what needs to be happening i mean the, yeah. not just them i mean the more the more widely it's disseminated so you know uh, uh that you can look at different kinds of solutions but that the answer doesn't always have to be throw more concrete and steel at it you know mm. That, that I think is kind of really important. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, where do you draw the line with structural engineering? If you, for instance, uh, we're heading into a space now with low energy buildings um, in terms of insulation uh, levels that are required, in particular with retrofit, where you can be placing stresses on buildings. You mentioned earlier on um, call, you know, damp being caused in, in buildings, for instance. Um, and it's possible in some instances that the measures you take to a building can uh, not um, not improve that, but ex- but exacerbate it, um, mm. and that that even up to the point of structural implications. So I'm thinking of um, we had John Moorhead on um, a couple of months ago, the architect who does a lot of expert witness work. Talking, he mentioned I don't know if he mentioned it in the slide, in the podcast, but one case where he'd been called upon where uh, a new low energy building and the roof as he described it was literally sliding off the building because of thermal bridging issues yeah um um you know where where do you think that these other concerns well for starts are structural engineers thinking about these kinds of issues um and should they be i mean and how is a roof sliding off a building because of thermal bridging because you really well. they put too few screws in it because yeah it is that so that's something I've got into on a on a retrofit project um recently where they insulated over an existing truss drafter roof. Um and with I think it was two hundred mil of PIR in that case. Sorry. Um but um it was a so yeah, you've got um screwing patterns for if so if you've got your your um Trust rafters, existing trust rafters underneath. You've only got a, some kind of board on top to take the insulation, so plywood or OSB. And then you've got your insulation deck, and then you've got potentially another board or just your battens on the top of that. Um, so yeah, you've got to fix those tiling battens and those those roofing battens all the way through that insulation into your rafters. Um, so yeah, some big big screws for that, and there are. I mean, that's available to you if you can look at Rotherblast or Simpson Strong Tile or any yeah. of these fact, yeah. fixing companies. They'll show you how to do that. And Rotherblast have a really great calculator on that as to how you calculate how many fixings are there are. But yeah, it, so that is, yeah, it is a structural issue. Um, I, I, yeah. I think what he was think, talking about, it could be wrong. And I know I, I give you another example of where this was definitely the case. Um, he talked about a project uh, retrofit with internal insulation um, where 
with poor levels of airtightness and high levels of in, of of internal, as he described, plastic, fantastic insulated plasterboard insulation, right? Um, and um, black with mold behind the insulation on each side of the building, even the south side of the building, which you wouldn't expect because of the kind of you know the, the sun that you'd expect to be drying it out. Um, mm. And floors sagging in some places. Yeah. In other words, the joist ends were rotting yeah. uh, because of uh, of the the gap in the insulation at that point. I thought that's what John was alluding to, or maybe as a contributing factor in the roof. Um, but um, it's you know when you get into this kind of stuff, like interstitial condensation, for instance, um, it. It can, even in masonry buildings, because, you know, how many masonry buildings uh, don't have timber frame roofs, right? You know, is this not a structural engineer's con- concern, do you say? Yeah, should be. Yeah, you've got to know about it, though, which I don't know that necessarily they do. So, like, <laughs> if we we, we see, we'll still see a lot of internal insulation on solid wall properties that is PIR. With a, they, they normally try and put a ventilated cavity behind it, and you're like, but how? Then you're not going to anything to vent it. And I'm yeah. like, that is... I mean, that's not best practice as far as I'm concerned. So we we've we tell the architect, we tell the client that's not that's not it, basically. Um and then sometimes we've had to just pull off and be like, no, we're not being involved with that because that's gonna be issues in the future. And then or I'll tell people to get a woofy analysis. I'll say, like, I don't know the details of it, but this doesn't look good to me. Um and then, yeah, but yeah, you can cause issues, structural issues by the joist ends rotting. You, the other thing that comes up in retrofits, potentially retrofits that are done well, is where you're cutting out all the joist ends to be able to do a good continuous air tightness line. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing about floors and walls into masonry walls is that they also provide some stability to the wall panel itself, the masonry wall panel. Right. So you need to be retaining that, restraining that masonry at those floor levels still, even if you're taking the floor joist ends not, not if not if you believe in it beth <laughs> yes um, you need to you know you never never fall so you're so like cynical that. jesus <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what's some did you say woofy analysis like mm. is that a call back to talking about dogs or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that a real thing yes it's, yeah yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know what it stands for. Jeff, yeah. you presume. No, it's in German, presumably. It's the Fraunhofer Institute's. Uh, you, you shouldn't have asked this question, Dan. Um, yeah. I a, was hoping it'd be like dogs that can sniff cancer. <laughs> <laughs> you just walk that's them weird. in, they turn the tail. <laughs> if they cock the leg against it's the dog. wall, nah, that's, that's not happening. <laughs> if they cock the leg against the wall, you're going to have higher interstitial contemplation levels, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Wolfie is it's the Fraunhofer Institute's um, dynamic hydrothermal simulation tool, um, which is used. Uh, it's the kind of there are other tools, but it's it's probably the most well accepted uh, tool to model the risk of interstitial condensation occurring in your your wall builder. Are you happy now, Dan? Yeah, yeah, serious nerd business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's it's important. It's I mean, uh, and I should say it's it, it's great to have modeling tools like that. I would always be wary though um, that you could give a, a chimpanzee a Stradivarius and it won't necessarily produce a, a, a nice tune out of it, you know. And Wolfie, these kind of modeling tools too, uh, you have to be careful about who's using them, um, what their expertise is, um, and how you can you can kind of assess that. Um, so they're they're very important, um, but but uh, it's it's hard to kind of put manners on 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 how they're used. Um, and any modeling tool, as well as good as uh, you know, as good as they may be, getting actual measured data, getting probes buried in building fabric and so on, and again having that data being properly understood um, 
is is you know, and then hopefully informing the, the direction of things like Wolfie, that's that's kind of where you need to go, you know. All of this stuff, it sounds very hard, but, you know, uh, we have enough of a breadth of knowledge now, I would say, in terms of some sustainable approaches that we can use um, where we don't need to do this kind of digging, you know. So, Alex, what about AI, Jeff? Can we use AI to do all this now? Is this the, <laughs> the future? <laughs> well, it'll tell you it'll give you a good answer anyway, yeah. Um, exactly. Give you an answer. So um, getting into the structural stuff again, though, then, back then. What, what about, there's a real kind of um, zeitgeisty problem issue at the moment, which is spray foam insulation. Uh, I've seen some horror stories coming out now. Uh, social media is great for that. Um, but um, do, you, do you see it on, uh, on uh, many projects? Is it something that you'd have concern about in terms of its impact on roof structures? Yeah, yeah, we've seen we've seen it on surveys um, for existing buildings. Yeah, generally causing problems. So yeah, d d telling people to take it out is mostly what we do. I don't I don't work on many new projects of people wanting to put it in. I don't think I've had anyone do that. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's a mostly a yeah a, a throwback to when it was popular. I can't remember was it sort of eighties where they did a load of them and it um it, yeah so those kind of age of properties and taking it out rather than people wanting how the hell do you take it out without taking the whole roof out well yeah taking the roof off generally yeah yeah so, so um, what do you have to do then what's the what's the right way of doing insulation or roof insulation depends on the roof but generally we like to do warm roofs rather than mm -hmm. cold roofs um but we still see a lot of people doing cold roofs um uh, you even see people doing cold flat roofs, which I really don't like. Oh god! Um, uh, do, you, do you lads know what uh, what Beth means by this by warm roof and cold roof? I do. I know. I know my uh, my kitchen extension is a cold a cold roof. Mm, yeah, thanks to my my builder who, yeah, wasn't using the most method uh, modern methods of construction. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've asked in the past, but uh, it's worth just in case. So like, from, yeah, from my perspective, I see it as whether the structure itself is warm or cold. Um, so whether you've got insulation on the outside of your roof joists, usually obviously for a timber roof, or whether those roof joists go right up against the back of the tiling buttons and you have a little ventilated cavity um, next to the next to them. Um, but yeah. yeah, if you've got a more yeah. succinct way of describing that, go for it. No, and the most common example of a cold roof probably is where people have got insulation on the attic floor. Um, and then you've got uh, yeah. the roof structure above it, you know, cold, yeah. you know, outside of the thermal envelope, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, um, uh, spray foams. It's it's just an an I guess it's an interesting example of of a, a material that was popular, um, which. Uh, there's a litany of issues coming out now, and not to say that there, I know that there will be, there will be people who will defend it. Uh, we, as a publisher, have to, uh, uh, pacifist plus have taken a position uh, against it um, on on review of of of, of evidence around uh, offgassing of VOCs from spray foam insulation specifically. Um, even leaving aside these other issues, I know it's possible to make a roof structure, um, uh, you know, um, to 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 to, to mitigate the risk of of damage to the roof structure through spray foam um but um kind of why would you bother you know um but i think what's really interesting about that is what you were telling me the other week jeff about how all right so spray foam insulation and it's off gassing it's not a problem now in most of the uk because the ambient temperature doesn't raise that much to the point where off gassing is likely to become an issue 
Yeah, this well, particular this particular VOC we were talking about from the from the US research we were referring to is 26 degrees. Um when it, when the building the test building got above 26 degrees, um there was very high levels of, of off-gassing of of the VOC called TCPP, which is associated with like birth defects and male fertility reductions um two years after the product was applied. Um, and the defense we had from one of the, the spray foam manufacturers that we talked to uh, about this uh, at the time we, before we published anything was, ah, sure, if you insulate a building with our insulation, it will never get to those temperatures, which is complete bollocks, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you absolutely, you don't know what's going to happen once the, the insulation has been installed. What might change to the building that might mean that uh, the integrity of the system is broken? Like, you might some, have some alpha living in the house who who, who love who, who yeah. a nudist alpha who wants to walk around in uh, very high temperatures all the time. You know. Yep, we've all been there. <laughs> like, absolutely, and climate change. Like, it's it's very real, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't know whether there's there's time bombs going to be ticking. Like, I think this was one of the questions that Jeff mentioned to you in advance of the the podcast. Like, how are you? Or are you thinking on those sort with those sorts of horizons? And how do you even how are you even doing it? Because it's it's all well and good finding stuff post hoc, like all those people that are going to get poisoned from hmm. people. Yeah, it it is something that is taken into account. It, mainly for us, it's in the wind uh, loading. So obviously those are getting stronger. Um, I say it's taken into account. It it is taken into account, but the current euro code the most up-to-date um standard is was published in 1991 or was written in 1991 for for the loading code i think um and obviously the the in, data input into that was before that mm. um and they i i was looking at it because i had a client ask this question actually about windows um and they were supposed to be doing an update in 20 20 i think um uh, of the of the eurocode uh, wind loading uh, but that hasn't uh, materialized yet so obviously the, there is climate change data in the input that they the, the loadings that they put into the code but obviously that was as of 1980 um right. the data that they had then so obviously probably does need a bit of an update um based on what we know now um, but yeah, we're waiting on that to come in. Um, and then the, so that you, you do get slightly higher wind loads in the Euro codes than in the British standard, which some people are still using. A lot of engineers are still using, to be honest. Um, yeah. obviously in yeah, the UK. You can use your, your Union Jack, uh, uh, data wherever you can, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, so they, yeah. So that uh, you do get slightly higher wind loads in the Euro codes, um, because of the, extra climate change data from that versus the British standard, which is obviously older than than that. Yeah. I mean, are people asking you about it? Not clients. Not often. Just that one person, they they were they, that was a house down in Cornwall and they were quite close to the coast. So they had quite high wind loads in the first place. So they were partly just interested in why I was so worried about the building, the racking of the timber building and the flat roofs uplift and canopies and balconies they were putting around it um so i was already like there's a lot of wind loads going on and then they were asking me about it but yeah, most people don't don't ask about it yeah I don't yeah. i don't know if it's being taken into account in the other direction with snow loads whether those are getting lighter but well, the, <laughs> the thing that's well, about this too is is that the uncertainty 
um, because I, I, you know, I know that um, obviously the world is generally getting warmer and it look it's looking more catastrophic, you know, all the time. Um, but uh, there is a um, the climate scientists there there is there is a, a a growing concern among some climate scientists around the Gulf Stream slowdown and the and the impact that that might have on climate in particular in Ireland and to a slightly lesser extent I think the UK but still to the UK um mm. you know Cork in Ireland has the same latitude as Warsaw uh, in Poland um, mm. um and um we could end up in a warming world having uh you know a potentially colder winters and hotter summers and and you know it's 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 the yeah. fact that we got all the it's you almost need to be thinking about uh designing buildings and infrastructure and everything else in a manner that is capable of handling a wild range of uncertainties yeah <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so without uh while while trying to minimize the amount of resources you're using it's it's kind of like trying to write a concerto or play a concerto a, a symphony with your with both your hands tied behind your back you know um but that's what we need to do right there are some there are some things surely that we can count on it's going to get windier and it's going to get wetter and it's going to get warmer and it's probably going to get colder too mm. paradoxically and there'll be extremes yeah, yeah. extreme elements, yeah yeah. Look, we know this. Oh, it's going to get drier as well when it gets hotter. Yeah. So, should we not just be planning for all of those circumstances? In what with, like, I'm just getting our fences that blew down in the backyard uh, fixed. And so, Alex, I was asking the man about concrete sleeves and bitumen sleeves and blah, blah, blah. And he was saying, nah, <laughs> like your post is going to swell, it's going to dry out, it's going to get loose. Like he he offered a system, but like, like the impression I got was people aren't asking these sorts of questions. They're just looking for a quick fix, easy solution. Like, oh, no one's. I've not been asked this. Well, your 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 poster is a great example because it's going to be it's something that we all need in the UK. Everyone has fence posts everywhere. It's going to be a problem for someone in fifteen years' time. You know, usually. Uh, and no one realizes that 15 years comes along really, really fast. And suddenly you're left with a bunch of rotting posts that snap, that break everything. And you're going, oh, crap, what do I do? I'll tell you what, I'll do the same thing again. And it'll be another problem for someone in 15 years time. Yay. Yeah, which is um, uh, what I was thinking of as well. When you're talking about that, that it comes into design lives as well, which yeah. people are, are asking for in relation to embodied carbon as well people are talking about because obviously we design buildings for 60 year design lives mm. um and that relates to what type what the the frequency of weather events you're likely to get on the on that structure and so obviously the loading then and then what types of uh, sort of treatments you're specifying for weatherproofing your structural materials it all comes into the structural design and you can design structures for longer than that to code because obviously um, Bridges are designed for 120-year design life, um, but it does impact the materials that you're using up front and, and all of that kind of stuff and how you go about designing it. You can't just add on it. So, yeah, people people think that you design a building forever, I think, or pe people just people just generally don't think that buildings fall down, don't think that they fail. Mm. That that That's my perception from dealing with people who own buildings most of the day. Um, so it's... it's um, yeah, thinking about that, obviously your fence post is only supposed to last 15 years and and that sort of, in a way, that's fine. 
that type of structure it might be fine um but if people are wanting the opposite with buildings for them to last longer then um yeah we need to be thinking about how that impacts the structure as well well with the fence post in particular you said oh this will last 12 15 years and the way we put it together when there begins to be some degradation because timber will rot there's no getting away from it uh that depends but this is the solution uh and he said and if you do this i can't remember exactly what he said i'm going to get an estimate he said, if you do this, you get another 12 years out of that bit and you, you can make these repairs and you get the best part of 25 years out of this system and it won't cost you any more than standard fence panels. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take it as a given that timber will rot, but um, there are these the Norwegian uh, Stav chur- churches, um, which are you know, timber-finished, timber-frame churches, which date, I think they're six, 700 years old in some cases. You know, and they're, Man, uh, you stick that church in my back garden, I guarantee it's going to rot. <laughs> <laughs> like we get lashed by wind and rain. Yeah, the Norway, the West Coast of Norway is not 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 as uh, a benign an environment in terms of of uh, rain and stuff as you might expect. Dan, yeah. Well, that's not correct. It, dep- it depends on the material. <laughs> well, Beth is Beth is much better qualified to talk about this than me. It, it, <laughs> she's much not, less. Be- she's not as belligerent. It's not <laughs> as sanctimonious. Well, yeah. Well, we'll give her a chance. Well, let's see. Um, <laughs> well, we've got we've got timber buildings in this country that are. That are old, obviously not quite as old as the Norwegian churches, but but we do have. Um, so yeah, it's a matter of detailing, and also, which I think comes into what you were saying just now, it comes into maintenance as well, because one of the things we rely on in structural design is that to get to give you the sixty-year design life is that some kind of maintenance will happen um, in the building. So so things like steelwork, that steelwork will be repainted, or the galvanized will be reapplied uh, after its design life and mm. and that's the that it will be looked at that, that gutters will be cleared that if you've got little tiny gaps between buildings that those will be cleared out that the vents will be unblocked so you it, there, there's all of those things that come into maintaining a building that i think people forget that that do actually impact things like the gutters or the mm. down the downpipes being blocked can become a structural issue if mm. you don't deal with it um so it's yeah that that kind of thing yeah will will also play into i think people people's expectation that they can just put up a building and ta-da and we can it will stay there like that forever is um sort of needs to be challenged i think particularly yeah. if you're wanting longer design lives sure i wanted to ask you um how you can reconcile the tendency towards over specifying like using um, <laughs> higher cement content um, or reinforcement of concrete, uh, the, uh, more reinforcement, whatever that is necessary against the need to minimize resource use. Like, are you satisfied that you can find ways to minimize resource use without compromising structural performance? I think a lot of it comes down to, I sort of mentioned earlier, is the amount of time you've got to do the design or that you're allowing to do the design, um, in your, fee proposal and scope uh, i don't think necessary from the engineers that i've spoken to i don't think most people are in there to put extra materials in that aren't needed in the building that they don't have to but obviously now we're in a competitive environment and because we get the best for the customers that way um we people are going for the cheapest uh price which isn't 
you doesn't usually get you the best. Uh, not the ne- I don't want to say not necessarily the best engineers because they can be very good engineers, but if they haven't got the time to put into the design in order to really refine all of those details and really give you options as to how you might go about it, you're not going to get that. Um, which I say, like I say, we we do a two stage design process so that we can give people some chance to input into things and to uh, we can give them options of like how they can make the structure slimmer by adding in columns changing where the doorways are all those kind of things so that they got the option ahead of time Mm. Um, but i don't think a lot of engineers do that Uh, from from feedback that we get i think because they um they're they're just doing a single pass design process so yeah that's that i think is a big one that if obviously I'm talking from somebody who is a structural engineer and wants people to pay for that. So this is obviously so I'm slightly biased, but um, it, yeah, I think making sure that you, you know what you're paying for and that you're going to, that you've got the service that you want from people. If you're wanting people to look into weird options of, of structural solutions or mm. really look into really refining the details of the design um, process, then yeah, they're making sure that you're paying people to do that. So things like that would get, from from our perspective, things that would uh, enable us to do more efficient designs would be to to get um, finite element analysis software, which is like 3D or it can be 2D, but modeling software that will really accurately model exactly how the building is moving and performing and, and what loads are distributed. We don't have that because those softwares cost a lot of money to do. So we, we do predominantly to 2d or linear analysis and um and hand calculations just the sort of market that we're in if you go for a larger consultancy they will have those those fancy uh tools to be able to to help them design more efficiently so yeah it's presuming they know how to use them properly yeah uh, i don't want to be on (laughs) you can go back to scott's reports on how people input rubbish into (laughs) into computer analysis and get rubbish out so there's an there's a safety report on that as well (laughs) talking about those before (laughs) yeah absolutely i think uh thinking about projects in those sorts of terms usually does pay dividends though so that's it's funny how much of a false economy it is like we work so website projects or messaging projects where oh no I know I know what it needs to do. Uh, mm, uh, uh. In my experience, having done this many times, <laughs> no one knows anything until they've spoken to the the, the users of the thing yeah. in much the same way as until I've considered all of the things I need to consider. We can't be sure of anything. Yeah. Uh, other than we can definitely do a better job if we spend time yeah. on doing the research and we will save you time, effort and money further down the line if yeah. we can access budget to do this work now. Yeah. Yeah, because we get a lot of people coming and they'll say, oh, I just want this beam designed here. Yeah, I just want, uh, or they'll, they'll come, oh, we, we we just need this. Or yeah, it's usually a just, we just need this, this or yeah. something like that. And it was going back to what you were saying about Jeff earlier about the, the, all these things impacting on structure that you weren't expecting to impact on the structural design, like insulation and, and all those kind of things. It's rare that you can just, just design a beam because the beam needs to sit on something yeah. and then you need to check that masonry and then you need to check that foundations is, is, is the sort of simplest one. If people are coming for like a beam knock through, they're taking out an internal wall and then you need to, imp- think about how taking out that wall impacts the overall stability of the 
building if if you've taken out too many horizontal walls and uh, you, you haven't got the racking performance anymore you might need to put a frame in so there's all yeah like you say asking talking it's all it's never a simple answer but you will find people who will yeah with your just your beam design but and you don't know how many just little beam uh projects have been added to a building which have yeah affected its integrity yeah yeah we see we see a lot of them with like terraced houses where you've got um like two rooms downstairs and then you you've got a dividing wall between not not necessarily terrace but that's quite a common front and back room and people want to take out that wall between you'll see uh, you'll come to uh, like maybe like a neighboring property and then they've got cracks in the wall cracks in the walls um in on that on that party wall line because you've added a massive point load on that wall that wasn't there before and the foundations moved it might not necessarily mean that it's failed but it's moved more than it was moving before therefore the masonry building has cracked um which is obviously if if people are noticing the cracks then that's a structural failure it's a serviceability failure it's not yeah. like ultimately falling down but it's it isn't people have noticed that the structure doesn't look quite right which is is what serviceability failures are um so yeah that isn't isn't an ag- adequate design in in my opinion of the mm. of the structure so yeah there's there's, there, there's always more to it than people think <laughs> oh, i'm talking about ai as well earlier i always get my architect one of my architect friends is delightfully tells me every so often that it, my job is going to be replaced by computers very soon and i'm like well <laughs> <laughs> is it is it though Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What? Yeah. How? How afraid is the computer of of uh, of you know being sued and or of, yeah. of, of going to jail? Yeah. I, looking I, at lots of different options. And... I, I attended a webinar yesterday or the day before about uh, it was the first one about AI that's interested me. It's like, <laughs> how are we going to? How should we be approaching? How should agencies be approaching hiring in an AI world? Hmm. Which was like, all right, let's let's look at an actual challenge rather than just talk about how AI will take over the world, which it can't. And we can know this with some degree of certainty that the singularity won't happen because AI can't even read people's handwriting. It's been trying for fifty years. I, I like can't it, even read my own handwriting. So good luck. <laughs> like it's it's detecting. Uh, that maybe I'm just outmoded. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean this is the this is the issue. Like sometimes you can't even read your own handwriting. Like Yeah, I just is... said that literally just said that, Dan. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I think you're like a glitching computer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um yeah. Like, it's good at picking up cancer, like and stuff like that, but it tends to pick up cancer the way that someone trained so it's a the cancer network. dogs that are should be worried about their jobs, is it Dan? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was an AI that was trained to, or a neural network, what they called them three years ago, that was trained to on a data set of photographs to spot horses in photographs. And it became amazing at spotting horses in photographs. Yeah. You show it any photograph, if there was a horse in it, it would nail it using this data set. <laughs> no problem. And <laughs> they interrogated the AI to ask it, like, what are you looking at? How are you actually spotting the horse? And uh, what it was actually looking at was uh, show jumping. So it was finding the jumps in the backgrounds of the photograph. <laughs> and so they had no idea what horses looked like. <laughs> it was just spotting contextual cues to identify 
much like how they're they're magnificent at spotting new cancers. Like it covers a whole data set and it finds something that the the human won't be able to see because it's processing the information in a completely different way. Mm. But where you are doing your work, the other example I use for AI is like you get a robot, an AI, and you send the robot into someone else's kitchen to make a cup of tea. It'll be stumped. Like all the cultural contextual cues, localized information about where the cups are stored, where you'll find the tea, are they likely to have milk? Uh, all those sorts of things. A human can do it, just go and routine, but you you put that in an AI model, less less obvious. So I think I think you're probably safe. <laughs> We're all right, yeah, exactly. The thing I meant to say, which I didn't because I ended up getting carried away telling me our story, was that one of the specialists at the webinar, a guy evangelizing AI, when he was asked quite late on in the session, where he thought it was most valuable, like using AI as in large language model, big data reader. His response was, if you need precision and accuracy, then you don't use AI. That'd be fair. He's talking about things like marketing, not structural engineering. But I think the point still stands. Probably safe. Anyway, back to the conversation. I wanted to ask you about um, about your pacifist qualifications because it is you referenced it at the start but it is mm. unusual um for a structural engineer i think I, I don't know if there's any other there, there probably are others who've, who've, who've gone at roots two, two others now as far as i know um so yeah, there is a plural okay three, well that's yes, something yeah Good. and there was one before me as well so yeah the, the, there's four in total i think okay uh, um how has that affected your your work in, in terms of your structural work you know yeah so it, it means uh, that I'm, a, I think, as I'm looking into the into more details, it, it, more into the details of, of the building. So thinking about thermal bridging and thermal bridging and air tightness continuity, the main ones where it comes into, I think, mm. um, because I've I've also found that it's brought in my architectural vague knowledge from from my interest from where I started really into the structures because um, I like I like looking at the details and I like looking at the project holistically with all of the other designers in inputting um so yeah that's that's been good um we do have to make sure that we don't start taking responsibility for architectural things going mm. back to insurances and where 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 the structures input stops as well mm. um but um yeah, trying to just, I think it's mainly just being able to highlight things that could become an issue earlier on in the design process because you're aware of them. Um, cause these things will always come out at some point, but it's better for them to come out when you're drawing on paper than when people are on site and paying for people to be on site. Um, so that's where I think it provides the most help. You can see some nice quick fix or some lateral kind of thinking fixes to, to some of these problems. Like one of the obvious ones I would have thought is like balcony connectors, you know, that kind of stuff, because you they tend to be steel and, and concrete, uh, you know, steel, steel penetrating concrete. Um, mm. And you have these uh, proprietary products that are that are very effective and stuff in terms of, of, of tackling that. But where I, if you can see behind me uh, because i'm doing the podcast today from um my my uh, living room in the, in the in the apartment i live in there's a steel uh frame balcony this is a modern low energy building uh, yeah. uh structure that's uh, sits that, that's bolted onto the building outside so that's how they they overcame it i suppose in that case they just built a separate structure you know yeah. um yeah 
you know which is which is usually easier because as with all of these things the 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 thermal brake connectors they're not all equal and the, there are some that perform much better structurally but obviously have much less of an insulation performance and then vice versa and mm. they won't all work for the same forces particularly if you're looking for like cantilever uh, balconies which obviously yours behind you aren't because they've got posts on the outside face of them yeah but i think they've got they've got posts up against the building as well have they so yeah, yeah. so yeah yeah which which is obviously the easiest way to do it because then you're just tying the balcony back into the main structure to take its stability from that but um if you're having to do like structural load support as well um then you've got a lot more things to contend with in that connection so if you've you've got like architects doing like a cantilevered you know frameless corner window sort of section or whatever in the building is that the that's where you earn your corn presumably in some cases (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) it's usually if i put a post there it won't be a post that's any bigger than your glazing frame that's going down in the corner there um please can i do that um (laughs) sometimes sometimes they want to sometimes you don't um i had a client recently where that it was a lowish energy extension um but he he was a mechanical engineer so he was he understood what was going on in sort of the process of the project and he was keeping a track of all the numbers and that kind of thing as engineers do um and he but so he'd got a cantilever corner door sliding door it's five meters in one direction i think three-ish meters in the other direction and then that had a cantilever um canopy uh, Mm. off it as well so the steel work in that was just mammoth because for this for what it was because then obviously if it's a big sliding door they've got silly little deflection tolerances on them so you sort of they generally only want to move about five-ish millimeters sometimes 10 if you're lucky um at all at the head of the door um in the in the variable load cases um so yeah it was it was massive um and then i said well he was looking at cost saving options i was like well if you put a post in the corner here that will save you a lot of money and so then i told him what the weight of the post was and i told i gave him another design for the weight of the rest of the steelwork and he was just working it out just on the weights and he was like but but we've like halved the weight of the steelwork here by putting that post in i'm like Yes, <laughs> I, told, I told you it would save you money. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we we want to do that then. Because it was only, it was actually five meter wide door. It was quite quite frameless, but, um, and it had a nice view out, but the post was only sort of 70-ish million diameter. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a big post. Um, yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, if that's the cost saving, then. Well, that's yeah, nice. Like, that. Nice to have an architect who will listen. I mean, you know, I'm sure the inclination sometimes as you're sort of saying is just to say, just stop it, slap them on the wrist and tell them to stop it. <laughs> yeah. We had, um, we had one, uh, we featured years ago, a lovely passive house, um, in Meath, um, which had one of these kind of frameless cantilevered corners sections. Um, and, um, uh, with passive house, as you know, Beth, um, you, one of the targets you have is uh, around uh, surface temperatures. Um, and because of the amount of steel in this, um, they, they couldn't get the this corner um, oh. to, 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 I think they needed to be sort of 16 degrees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so what they did, and they, this is mad now, they, and, they, and they had a very good passive house consultant, Archie O'Donnell, who's now uh, with uh, I3PT, um, uh, the independent design certification company. Um, they came up with a, des- a design where they, because they had underfloor heating in the house, right? Beth, you're going to uh, wince at this now. Um, they they ran a separate like zone, I think, on the heating system. They had a they had a loop on the underfloor heating system 
in this corner, which with the thermostat, basically they triggered it so that it would that if the temperature dropped below 16 in a pacifist and they compensated for it elsewhere, you know, with, with the extra installation, whatever, um, uh, but that it would be able to bring the temperature up to above 16 uh, so they could have their architectural flourish, you know, <laughs> uh, it's extraordinary. And I wonder what uh, what the cost implications were and yeah. what the carbon costs would be, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's for, for us, it's making sure that the it is what the client wants and not what the architect wants necessarily. Because they're, yeah. they're our clients. So I, I want to do what they, where I want to spend their money where they want to spend their money. And if they'd rather save 15 grand on the steelwork cost by putting in a post and then spend that on their kitchen, that that's what I'm going to do. Um, because, yeah, the, the, that's, yeah. I obviously like architectural intent yeah, uh, to, to some extent. And I understand that there's things that they're doing with the spaces and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately it's not their money. So I don't know. Yeah. Do you, if, do, if, if, do you ever fall out with architects over this stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think also, cause I'm not very good at dealing with the communications either, but uh, there's possibly another conversation for another time about being autistic, but <laughs> it's a, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, yeah. I, I don't I it's, it's a tricky one to manage I don't know that I've got it right yet either but um yeah just trying to well some people are hard to to to, to uh to work out anyway you know and and uh, when you're dealing with as I was saying in the market and I don't want to be architect bashing because there's loads of amazing architects out there and I love good architecture but um even it's the just so tempting is that it <laughs> yeah this like it, often when we've had contributions from uh, architects in the past like there's a politics and language i've said this before the a in the in architect when it's written uh, in, in an article by an architect will always be capitalized um whereas the e in engineer won't be or the c in contract yeah, yeah. well know. even if we're um, put on the list as well <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah exactly yeah yeah, because uh, I, I I keep thinking I want to do a little um, a diagram of what all of the architectural uh, the the awards that they give out to each other for for their things and what they would all look like if there was no structural engineer involved because you have to put them on <laughs> on the list. As my beef with the with the passive house planning package as well. There's there's M and E engineer, there's passive house uh, designer, isn't there? There's an architect box. I think there's a contractor box. There's still no structural engineer box. I think on the on the verification page, maybe he's added it in on the recent one, but um, it's not on the list. That is an excellent point. Yeah, um, <laughs> on that front, um, uh, on the passive front, um, I'm thinking uh, one of the questions I want to ask you is about um, Wolfgang Feist, the founder of the institute, saying that the re- I'm bringing it back to structure and condensation stuff. Sorry, um, uh, so the reason for such stringent air tightness targets in passive house is mainly for structure, not energy. He talked of experience from pioneering low energy projects in the in the 70s and 80s, um, which informed the the design of the passive house standard um, of vapor condensing uh, in structures and leaky but well uh, insulated buildings in what he described as summer wet and winter cold climates um, and causing structural damage. Is that is, do you think that's an issue in the UK? Yeah, certainly. Um, because yes, because it, obviously that was probably based in Germany, wasn't it? That research and our climate's a bit wetter than theirs is. So yeah, I imagine it is. It's not something I necessarily know a lot about. Sort of the, the intricacies of like the vapor movement, and uh, but it's something that I'm aware of. And I imagine also that, that maybe there was more examples in that research of timber 
buildings, which is obviously going to make more of a difference too in timber-based insulations. We're yeah. quite sort of, uh, well, I say we're sort of uh, immune to that in this country, but there's a lot of damp issues in masonry buildings as well, particularly solid wall ones. So, Well, that's that. it. Yeah, and it may not always be structural, or it may be that the structural issues impl- only uh, apply in the context of things like, uh, I don't know, your floor is sagging, <laughs> your roof sagging, whatever. Which is yeah. not ideal, right? <laughs> but also masonry being degraded by freeze-thaw action of... Right. Like, That's true, so yeah. Yeah, the fast-thaw cycle. It does impact yeah. that, particularly sort of brick, brick buildings. Um, so, yeah, it will it will degrade the structure. I remember Joseph, it is. Yeah. Joseph, Joseph Little, the Irish architect, talking about the kind of the amount of freeze-thaw cycles you can have uh, in Ireland uh, on a given day can be extraordinary. Um, and... Um, if you've got a internally insulated single leaf brick building, you've got in some cases the, the, the bricks just being put under so much stress um, because you're not losing heat from the room in the way that you would have beforehand to keep the brick dry. Um, and it's soaking up this this moisture, um, then uh, freezing, and then the then the sun, uh, you know, uh, melting it effectively. And that process being repeated you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine t- times a day in some cases, um, mm. and uh, and the bricks just crumbling. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Not- there's some. In- I was just trying to find a lady's name, but there, there's some interesting research being done as well in the, that impact of moisture in um, flooding resilience in masonry buildings. Um, oh, there's a lady called Fiona who's doing her research at um, Exeter University, and I've totally forgotten her surname at the moment. But um, I'll put it in the show yeah, notes if, if we yeah, can. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's doing some really interesting research in in that, and in the, in the and obviously she's a structural engineer, so the impact of it on structures, um, and and in terms of climate resilience from a flooding perspective, which is interesting. So, how much or do you at all do any guidance regarding maintenance of a building once you've you've done your piece? Like, is a part of that offering the advice where whereby you're really going to have to think about these things for this structure to remain intact. I guess we probably do that less for new buildings, although it does, it, 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 it comes sort of implicit, but not in the, in the um, sort of all of the finishes that we're talking about. If you're doing like paints and stuff like that, they'll have, they'll have design lives that are in the product information but yeah we don't do too much in sort of like and if it were a a commercial building it would be in the UNM manual um but if the operation and maintenance manual but if it for domestic buildings we don't do that so much or at all so yeah something to think about and and also we we think about it in terms of like what the impact of with new buildings if we're particularly timber if i'm using timber for racking walls how people know that that's a structure like a significant structural wall Mm. most people just go oh it's a stud wall we can take it down which it can be the case in masonry buildings but obviously isn't the case in timber buildings and isn't always the case in masonry buildings yeah um, so yeah, we think about how, how there's nothing in that to communicate, particularly past the original building owner, mm. um, which people who are building their own grand designsy type house don't often think about because it's their big project that they've been saving up for ages and it's their it's their forever home, but it's not. Yeah, but they're not going to live forever. They're not going to. They're not going <laughs> to live forever. They're they're not going to be a sole occupant. So I have had to explain that to people sometimes about. Oh well, I don't mind if this load is slightly less, and you're like, oh, yeah, you, <laughs> you, you don't. But uh, it, it, that's often comes into like loft spaces. Well, I'm only ever going to store my 
luggage up there for traveling empty empty boxes and i'm like yeah but if there's a space there somebody's going to fill it with books at some point um so yeah how how do i do that but obviously then without adding significant impact on the structural sizing and 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 material usage so i mean it was something benny said the other week benny mcdonald yeah that we don't teach people how to drive buildings we don't give them any advice and there's there's never there's never a record of what has actually happened to a building Mm. and that's the sort of thing that really needs to i mean i'm not suggesting this is your job (laughs) it's something that's it, it seems an abject failure of the the whole system. Yeah, one of many. Uh, one of yeah, one I was going to say one of many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it would be it would be good to have that recorded. Um, because and and it, it, because it's come into the conversations in passive house, hasn't it? In terms of the technology in in the buildings is different mm. to what people are used to. So how do we tell people how to use the building? But we, it's just a general point from my perspective about maintaining buildings knowing how to how to live in them um in terms of keeping them keeping the materials there for longer minimizing our carbon impact through that um through material usage that way yeah i wouldn't have thought of until i'd pick this thread up the the low energy low carbon building stuff it would never have occurred to me to think about asking the man who installed my fence the need so how am i going to maintain this because it's not that i don't want to have to do it again ever it's that well, I want it to last, so I don't have to expend not just the money, but the wasted materials. Yeah, on and such time. Endeavor. Wasting your headspace thinking about the damn thing. Yeah, you know. Um, All right. So I know. So I will be asking him. How do I maintain it? Can I have a list of things I need to do, please? Because mm. yeah. uh, it, it, it does come into the designers, I think, as well. We you see things that you think, why did they ever design it like that? We, one of the common ones is two rear extensions, but they're next to each other rather than having an attached party wall between them with like a fifty-ish, maybe a hundred mil gap between mm. them. Or she's yeah. sort of three-ish meters deep. You think that wasn't the best design choice <laughs> to go with yeah. that? Because how how is anyone ever going to get in there to to scrape? The leaves and muck out that come through that, which which they will, and then then the other other instance that comes up a lot with new builds and with passive houses is people wanting to build timber buildings up against existing masonry walls, and we we've done some of them. I'm not sure that necessarily the detailing was great, and I don't I don't I don't like to do it anymore. Where you're building a timber building up against something, and you've got a ventilated cavity around the back there, but how well is that ventilated? How can you maintain it if it how can you maintain it just generally because it's obviously what you do is you cut down all the trees around it cut down get rid of all the plants and just come yeah. for everything yeah. no problem <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have yeah. to be a, an environment without any green you can get that that grass yeah, they, yeah. a big roll <laughs> of grass the, pla- the plastic grass yeah. <laughs> yeah proper order yeah exactly but that will melts because of the the higher heat so you've got a, uh, some sort of cooling outside as well for the grass too yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, this is proper thinking. Uh, I wanted to ask you separately. Um, uh, I'm just thinking in the context of Grenfell and stuff. Um, and also, uh, we we need to think about uh, the context of time and demanding yeah, right. listeners' attention as well. Well, well we should then we, we can drop it then. All no, no, but no, no. It, a, a grand finale in Grenfell. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, given the findings of the Grenfell inquiry with regard to like falsification of 
fire tests and stuff underpinning uh, BBA certs, for instance. Like, is the whole system built on sand? If if a product has an argument cert, for instance, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the kind of structural engineers who maybe rely more on whether it's the codes or or, or a piece of paper like this, like an argument cert, and it's designed in accordance with the cert. Is that enough for you to sign off on? Well, theoretically, it should be, but I mean, I, in in our experiences, getting people to read the obviously in, our, in the UK BBA certificates and read the exclusions and the limitations on what, what the usage is for that product because usually it's people asking us to do often things below ground and you read the thing and it's not it's not got the certification for that but so that's more of an issue i think but yeah i mean i don't know how we, we even go about starting to deal with that from a sort of falsifying is that even something i don't know that you should be designing in Assuming that people are going to be falsifying the documents, I don't. Know. Well, you, no, you can't assume, I suppose. But yeah. that's what I'm getting at is that um, there are some people in life who go through the motions to a certain extent and rely on a document or a certification or whatever um, without necessarily really understanding um, mm-hmm. uh, the approach. Whether whether it's um, un- un- understanding the, the the overall design approach, understanding. Uh, how robust the you know the the materials we look at how the materials are likely to work together and i want you know that that's that's what i what i'm wondering in this case is does that not create more of a need for designers to to uh to actually understand this stuff themselves and to how and, and to be able to, to to interrogate it more like you, you i'm you know you're probably going to know I would imagine, in your case, from, from what I know of you, that if you, if you, if you're given uh, a particular build-up or product, or whatever, your 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 mind will start racing as to, and you'll and you'll start to have ideas forming in your own head about how uh, sensible or not uh, that looks, irrespective of what paperwork it has, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually, the one that's come up recently has been timber below 150 above ground level, um, because somebody's said that you can do it. And you just think, yeah, it doesn't seem like a good idea. We one of the things we've been thinking about because we do my, my director and I do a bit of teaching mainly to architecture students about structures, obviously. Um, but how we input that, get them to think about those kind of things. Of and, and the other one is is I you I've specified this product. Somebody's come back and gone, oh, we can swap it to this, and invariably they are not equal. Um, and you just look at the data and go. Uh, so trying to work out how we how we communicate that kind of because obviously that's numbers usually comparing what which is terrifies architects a lot of the time. But so, so it, it, but it's trying to get them to like you don't need to necessarily do anything with those numbers. You just need to know that those numbers exist and be able to compare one one to the other and see whether they look equal or be yeah have some more critical thinking in reading through the the bba certificates and and seeing not just taking the salesperson's say so on this because because that's what, what it comes into a lot of it, somebody said that you can use this product in this situation which is against what it says in the bba certificate and that somebody is usually the salesperson and they don't have any pi for their what they're telling you um so yeah, I've a while ago now, but I was overruled on a project about putting two forms of waterproofing in in a basement, which would be usual for like a basement that would be used for habitable spaces rather than just a garage. 
and they the salesperson wanted to use just their one system that they were they said it was it was going to be fine despite the fact that the builder had used it before it had numerous failures of the basement of the waterproofing system and they'd have to go back and fix it but yeah he had th- that guy had said that it would be fine so it was fine so i got overruled on that one um i don't know whether they didn't have any failures yet on their building but yeah, but yeah that, that's not uncommon but is it yeah i'm not sure how you go about sort of teaching that we've we've been trying to think of it how to do it in ways that don't don't involve too many numbers or Mm. Yeah, that you can break it down from something that's smaller than like a fully full-on BBA certificate, having to read through all of the the wording and um, yeah. So that's I don't know whether that answers your question, but no, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. There's a piece of work needed there to kind of you know right across the industry to get better at, at communicating simply, clearly, but without dumbing down. You know, um, it's, it's it's always a challenge. I wanted to ask you uh, maybe a final question, um, which is. Is there anything you're excited about at the moment? Anything, anything, any kind of, you know, because we're all looking for ways to kind of reduce uh, the embodied carbon and, and and ensure good operational performance and, and and improve the broader sustainability of buildings. But is there anything in particular you're looking at now that has got your attention or that you're, uh, you know, hopeful about? I'm looking forward to seeing how we can... Um, implement using more UK grown timber in our buildings and how we can teach people how to do that. It would be great to see um, some engineered wood product uh, factories, manufacturing facilities uh, becoming common in, obviously there's few in Scotland, but further down the UK so that we can start using the timber. Because there's some great work that's been done, particularly by Wood Knowledge Wales, about using Mm. Welsh grown timber. in house in in structural applications as well as obviously like windows and that kind of thing um so yeah i hope that that becomes a thing and then we're thinking about how that and then teaching people how that 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 is different to using a sort of a european grown or a canadian grown timber and what the implications of of that are Mm, Uh, absolutely is there there anything you're itching to have a go at uh timber piles that would be good fun i think but I haven't done any yet, and I don't know how you find the timber that's long enough. But there's an ACAN event, uh, which might have happened by the time you put this up, but maybe they've got a recording of it that we're doing in a couple of weeks. I think it's on the 17th. No, this, this will be going out on Tuesday. So Okay, yeah. great. Um, and I think that's then next Monday evening, um, ACAN Architects Climate Action Network, which we're talking about concrete-free foundation options. And Barbara Jones from Strawworks has been putting into that from her experience with car tyres. And then there's a guy called Steve Yates from Web Yates uh, Engineers in London, who he's going to be talking about his experience with timber piling. So I'm interested to hear what he's got to say on that. And there's somebody else talking about uh, compacted trench uh, fill trenches as well whose name I've completely forgotten right now but yeah that that will be uh, an interesting and quite short discussion in the evening on Monday oh is that a live event or is that going to be over the internet we can stick a link in the show notes as well yeah it's it's online to zoom um yeah um to zoom events so it should be available from I'm not sure oh, whether they put their recordings on their website as well for people who can't make it, but um, I'm sure they'll tell you that in the information. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's great. On that note, uh, uh, oh, yeah, anything else you want to plug particularly? Anything you want to kind of, you know, uh, 
from self, be selfish. I mean, build collective, obviously, as a, as a, as a, as a company, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's yes. an obvious one, right? Um, yeah, that's us. We're, we're based in, in Bristol, but we work in across the UK. Like I said, we've only got insurance for UK projects now, but so we can't work in Ireland, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so I'm, gl we, I'm glad you were aware that the Republic of Ireland is not part of the UK because some, <laughs> some of your fellow countrymen and women are not so, um, so so uh so on the ball uh regarding yeah. history and geography yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's some of the smaller islands that confuse me a little bit like the isle of man and jersey and guernsey we've had some queries about that and i've definitely had to look into that in more yeah. detail um but yeah so uh, yeah we're based in bristol we obviously specialize in low energy and uh timber design but we're doing and and sort of around about projects of the new build house kind of scale of things larger retrofits um, we also have a um, civils team who do drainage and highways design. So they're obviously from a Sudsy type of perspective, looking at sustainability drainage systems and um, pavement design and all of that kind of stuff that I definitely don't want to be involved in, but they love doing it and they're very good at it. Um, yeah, so they do larger schemes as well, sort of smallish housing developments and and commercial uh, developments. Yeah, so very good. That's what we do. Well, cool. thank you so much. Uh, you've been a great guest. We'll have to have you back on. I'm definitely interested in talking to you as well about uh, the whole kind of neuro neurodiversity stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, but that that's a separate. It's not just one podcast, really. But it's you know, it's at least we have to at least give it uh, one uh, mm. hour and a bit of our time. <laughs> yeah, that would be really interesting to chat chat about. Yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. We did debate whether we'd be able to crowbar it in, or mm. whether it would even be appropriate to to do so. But, uh, yeah, sometimes it feels a bit shoehorned in. I felt like when I did yeah. the, the sustainable uh, Jeffrey's sustainable building podcast, I sort of shoehorned it in a little bit, and I'm not quite sure how that fitted. Probably because I haven't listened back to the recording, and I really should do. <laughs> 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 yeah. So um, thank you. Yeah, but no, we get to talk about that. Sometime. Yeah, we will do. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, give our best to her as well. But thanks, Beth, for for uh, you being an amazing guest. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. Thanks so much for your time. Um, all right, wrapping up. Thank you for listening. Um, so uh, subscribe, please. Uh, review the podcast. Five stars. Nothing else will do. We are needy uh, and vain. Um, we would appreciate if you'd share it with people. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will. So share it with them. And if you're already doing that, thank you so much. Yep. Um, and talk to us if you need any help uh, Zero Ambitions Partners can help people with all sorts of things so anything to do with uh, well we help all sorts of businesses within the built environment address uh, decarbonisation and sustainability yeah, calculations and whatnot. you know yeah. yeah, from strategy to messaging to calculations all sorts of things and we like talking about this stuff, obviously, because we put something out at least an hour every week. So obviously, uh, we enjoy talking. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye. Great. Thanks. Wow. <laughs>